Philippians chapter 2. And I will read from verse 1. And Father, as we look to the rock of ages this morning, we ask that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We pray that nearly every week. And we do that because without your spirit enlightening our eyes, we have no understanding. So, Father, please uh, speak to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Philippians 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Now chapter 2 here begins immediately with what we would call this transitional word, so. Uh, in some translations, it's the word therefore. And we know from our past studies that the word therefore or so forces us to look back to know what the writer said previously, and it moves us forward into a train of thought that is summarizing what was behind it. This is a clear, so the therefore is referring back to what Paul said in chapter 1, verses 28 through 30, when he writes, This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had, and now hear that I still have. At uh, the end of chapter 1, you're reminded that if you're a Christian believer, that your salvation is a, is a gift that came from God. It's because it had been granted that you believe in the name of Jesus Christ. You've been given the grace to believe in his name. You were lost, and you were blind, and you were dead, and you are an enemy of God. And he who is rich in mercy opened your blind eyes, unplugged your deaf ears, softened your hard heart, and now you're now a believer. And those who believe, he says, will suffer for his sake. Now, we went over the most of that last week. So when you read the therefore or the so in verse 1 of chapter 2, you have to bear in mind that Paul's assuming that everybody in the congregation in Philippi who are hearing this letter read, they're, all, they're basically all believing Christians, and they're all suffering for Christ. So the ones listening to the letter that's being read, have experienced salvation. 
They understand that they were sinners, and they understand that Christ has, in fact, saved them from their sin. Now, we saw that when we started the book, when we looked at Acts 16, we saw how the church was started. Lydia was converted. The jailer was converted. And these were just two that are reported, but obviously many more have been converted since then. So he's writing to believers whose lives have been transformed by Jesus Christ. So along with the first word being important to understand the text, there's also a series of conditional clauses here in the text that are equally important. The conditional clauses are what we would call if-then clauses. In the ESV, you only see the word if in the very first clause, but it's implied in the others. And you don't see the word then, but it's also implied there as well. I apologize for having you to put on your thinking caps this morning. I apologize to have to teach you grammar. I know it's summer. Your kids aren't in school right now, and you don't want any of this. But this if-and-then clauses are important, and so we're having a little bit of an English lesson here. So pay close attention, please. Um, so here in chapter 2, in verse 1 and 2, Paul's putting forth four if-and-then clauses that depend on whether or not someone has experienced both salvation and suffering. So these if-and-then clauses are dependent upon whether or not you know Christ. I actually call them if-and-then clauses, but in the text, there's actually four if-clauses in a row, and there's four then-clauses in a row. So it's not if-then if then, if then, if then, it's if, 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 and then, 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 then. Now let me read verse 1 and pay close attention where I add the ifs and the thens that are implied in the text. So he starts with the assumption that you're a Christian believer, you're experiencing the suffering that goes along with it, and now verse 1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, if there is any participation in the Spirit, and if there is any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind. Then complete my joy by, being, by having the same love. Then complete my joy by being in full accord. And then complete my joy by being of one mind. And the obvious answer to each if clause is, of course there is. Well, how do you know? Well, because you've experienced it, because you're a Christian believer. If you're in the Philippian church the day that this letter was read, and the reader up front in the pulpit said, if there's any encouragement in Christ, I hope you want to stand up. It was a real paltry amen earlier in the service. But I hope that you would say, amen, there's encouragement in Christ. You'd want to stand up and shout. The word encouragement means, it means comfort. It means consolation. And since you become a Christian believer, you have experienced comfort from the God of all mercies who comforts us in all of our afflictions. Then if the reader read the next phrase, if you've experienced any comfort from love, again, you'd want to say, yes, amen. This is the John 3, 16 kind of love that you've experienced an abundance of love because of the simple fact that God expressed his love for us. And while yet sinners, Christ died for us. Next phrase, if, when you became a believer, you, did you really experience the participation, which means fellowship in the Spirit? You want to say yes to that as well. The participation of the Spirit refers to the fellowship that we have with God through the Holy Spirit and the subsequent fellowship that we have with one another. And I hope you would say, yes, we've experienced that. Amen. And then finally, if as a believer you've experienced 
any affection and any sympathy. And I think you just bow your head there and say, yes, I have experienced God's affection. I have experienced his sympathy. When Jesus had compassion on the multitudes, uh, this is the same word to describe that. And we've experienced his care and his love and his mercy each and every day since we become believing Christians. And when you hear all of the ifs Paul is saying, and you're resonating with them, you're saying, yes, I've experienced these. What you're saying is, yes, these are absolutely true, all true. That's the first part of the conditional clause. See, now we come to the thens. Then, then, then. And Paul actually right now, he has you exactly where he wants you. Or should I say God has you exactly where he wants you. Because actually, the, the point is, when you use an if clause, when the if is true, then the, end is, the, the then is automatic. For example, a normal if clause would say, if you don't eat all day then what's automatic is you're going to be hungry. The if clause is true, then the then clause is automatic. If you didn't sleep last night, then today you're very sleepy. I'm looking at some of you. I know you're very, very sleepy. If, if is true, then then is totally automatic. The second phrase is true, then the first phrase conditions are met. Paul's already laid out all the ifs, and as a believer who has experienced the grace of God, you're saying a hearty amen to all of these things. J just for fun, let me just try it, okay? Let me see if your amens are any better. Say amen if you've experienced any encouragement or comfort in Christ. Amen. It's very weak. Have you experienced any of his love? Have you experienced the Spirit of God living in and through you as you fellowship with Him and with other believers? Amen. And have you experienced His grace and His mercy? Amen. Now, if you're affirming these things, and you are, notice the thens in verse 2. And I'm going to pair them with the if clauses. Paul writes, If you've received encouragement in Christ, then complete my joy by being of the same mind with your brothers and sisters here at Grace Fellowship Church. If you've been comforted by his love, then complete my joy by having the same love for one another here in this body. And if the Spirit of God lives in and through you, then complete my joy by being in full accord with one another. If you've received any, ex any experience or have experienced God's mercy and his kindness, then complete my joy by being in one mind with those here in this family of God together. So if you're going to summarize this just in a short phrase, you would say this. If Christ has granted you the grace on, to believe in him and suffer for his sake, and you've experienced his encouragement, his love, his spirit, his mercy, his compassion, then Paul is shouting to the Philippians, then be unified, then live in unity, then live in harmony. But since the if clauses are true and we all affirm them, then the oneness in Christ is automatic. It's a cry to the individuals in the church to be unified. Now we saw this theme last week in chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul encourages these believers to stand firm in one spirit and with one mind, striving side by side for the sake of the gospel. As the letter goes, he continues on in chapter 2, verse 2, we just read that, of having the same mind, same love, and being in full accord. 
as the letter goes on, he's going to continue to further emphasize this by pointing to Christ as the model of what he's talking about. If you glance over at chapter 2, verse 19, Paul's going to show how his relationship with Timothy is the kind of unity he's talking about. New American Standard Bible states that, that Paul has no one else of kindred spirit, no one else that he's fully unified with. And verse 21 of chapter 2 states the reason they have unity or this kindred spirit is because while others seek their own interests, Timothy and Paul seek out the interests of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in chapter 2, verse 25, Paul shows another unified believer with his relationship with Epaphroditus. He calls him a brother and a fellow worker and a fellow soldier. Now, chapter 3, he takes a pause. There's a shift that comes in chapter 3. Because there seems to be a reason not to have unity in some situations with some individuals. Paul makes a distinction in chapter 3 between those who believe in Christ alone for salvation and those who propagate a, a works-based gospel. Like the Judaizers in Galatians, there were those in Philippi who were teaching that circumcision was supposed to be part of salvation. There were those who thought their own good works would make them right with God. And in chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, Paul makes a distinction between the dogs, as he calls them, and those who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. There'd be no unity with individuals who promoted a gospel of works. In fact, in verse 18, he calls them enemies of the cross. So along with the desire for unity, there's a time for disunity when it comes to the truths laid out in Scripture, especially in regards to salvation. I pointed out last week that the reason Paul was imploring the believers in this church to have and maintain unity was because of the disunity that was actually in the church. And we saw this publicly in this broken relationship in chapter 4, verse 2, with Yodia and Syntyche. You can look there again, chapter 4, verse 2. When Paul writes, I entreat Yodia and I treat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, how embarrassing would that be for you to be sitting somewhere over here in Yodia and Syntyche sitting way over there and having your name publicly announced to the congregation because everybody knows that you're not getting along. These are not... And, and, and these two are not individuals in the church that just showed up once in a while. These were two faithful believers. Paul calls them fellow workers. They've labored together with Paul, and now they have no relationship whatsoever. They're not of the same mind. Paul's asking for a third party to get involved to help them work out their differences. We don't know who the third party was, but asking for a third party to mediate sometimes helps, and sometimes we need that. But it just grieved him that these two who, who work side by side with him to proclaim the gospel have a division in their relationship that the church knows about. And they're literally right now completely ineffective. Because quite honestly, a church cannot function without unity. As we go back to chapter 2, it's the unity of the church that Paul says will complete his joy. 
Now, as commentators attempt to dissect those four statements in verse 2, they really are simply saying the same thing four different ways, telling you and I as believers that we can and we should and we must live in harmony with one another. There are no hidden or helpful meanings necessarily with those words. He's just saying, if we're believing Christians and we've experienced all the ifs that we already went over, then live in unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ. It sounds so easy at first, doesn't it? But I think, and I think now more than ever, with an entire nation that's as divided as it's ever been, at least in my lifetime, how much more should we as believers live with the same mind, have the same love, with one accord and with one mind? Now, now, I'm not a mind reader, but I know what you're thinking. Because I thought the exact same thing. Does this mean we're supposed to agree on everything? Uh, only if it's with me. That's the real answer. Well, of course not. Husbands and wives have a one flesh relationship. And there are things that even in our own homes we don't agree completely on. Maybe I should speak for myself. I'm sure all of you marriages, you guys agree completely all the time with one another, right? And if you are not going to agree completely all the time with your one flesh partner, and you bring that into a church building full of sinners also with totally different backgrounds, that they're not going to agree on everything either, yet we're still commanded to be unified as believers. Have you noticed that not everybody in the church shares your political view? Have you noticed that not everyone in the church agrees with how you educate your children? We have a very unique blessing here in our youth group, which Jeremy and Corey are leaders and teachers of, where our youth group is represented by, kid, by people from the public school, from the Christian school, and from and our home school. Very, very unique. And if you talk to all of those parents, they would give you their opinion about why they're educating their kids the way they are. So they're not in agreement necessarily with how they, they know what they're doing, and they may not agree with what they're doing. At the same time, we're supposed to have unity even on things we disagree on, what are not clear in Scripture. In regards to raising our kids, I've said this before, the clear admonition, what's clear is, is that we are to raise our children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. That applies to how that applies to each family. You have to think through the options. But there should be absolutely no disunity with one another over whatever option one family chooses over another as believers. There was a pastor I spoke to um, in a different state in 2019 about how churches and how we should be navigating through covid when it first started. Um, we're still trying to figure out what to do, how to approach it, how to move forward. It's actually hard to remember because it's so long ago and so many things have transpired. But do you remember there was actually a presidential election during COVID in 2020? Do you guys remember that? How could you forget? The pastor told me he was more concerned about the disunity in his congregation related to the election than he was about covid because like all churches, he has Democrats and Republicans in the same church. How do you disagree with a brother or sister in Christ about politics and maintain unity in your relationships? Now, some of you are already saying you can't. 
And I'm glad you're here this morning because the text says more than that. Because if you're immediately thinking, I can never have fellowship or unity with someone who calls himself a Christian who has a political view other than mine, if, if that's you, then you're in the right place. Because this text is telling us how we can be unified in Christ, how we should be unified in Christ, and our unification in Christ is greater than our political differences. All differences that aren't clear-cut in Scripture. We lived in the Upper Peninsula. We used to drive from where we lived down to Green Bay to pick up people when they flew into the to Green Bay Airport. One small little town, I still remember to this day, when you drive by, two Baptist churches side by side. Probably 50 feet from one another. Now, I have no idea what happened. I don't know if the issue was moral. I don't know if it was doctrinal. I don't know if it was just or, or anything else. But I'm sure there's a story behind why the people in those churches in that town had to have two walls between them in order for them to fellowship with their God. Unity among believers is not an easy task. So how do we as believers make sure we don't have relationships that are broken over issues that are not doctrinal. How do we keep churches from splitting? How do we keep believers from leaving over things that are not central to the gospel? Or how do we even make it so we don't have to come in the building first, look to see where Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so sit, and make sure we're now on the other side? How do we avoid all of those things that are all very personal and all very real? Well, Paul does not disappoint. He tells us how. Let me read after those if-then clauses. He goes on in our text. Let me read from verse 3 of Philippians 2. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul helps us on both ends of unity. He tells us which of our attitudes and responses will prevent unity from ever happening. And then he tells us how the right attitude and the right response will promote unity. Verse 3 spells it out in a very clear way. And verse 4 basically reiterates the same point from, for emphasis. He writes this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Now, selfish ambition is, is the word strife in the King James. J.B. Phillips translates this word rivalry. It means to put oneself forward in a partisan or fractious spirit. It's, in secular Greek, the word denotes a self-seeking pursuit of a political office by unfair means. James uses the word, why don't you turn to James chapter 3 for a minute. James, James uses the same word here and actually goes into greater detail. In James chapter 3, I will read from verse 14. James 3, verse 14. We're picking this up in midstream here. 314, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts... Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. It would be very naive as believers to think that this cannot happen to us. Because James is writing to Christians. 
James is writing to believers, and he's pointing his finger right at them. He's pointing his finger right at us. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, he's saying that if it's there, here's your if clause, then automatic disorder, confusion, and every vile practice. The selfishly ambitious person, he has to be first. He wants to win every argument. He wants to prove that he is right and everyone else is wrong. He's looking out for his interest. He wants his desires. He wants things to go his way. He has no interest in the people around him. He just has interest in me. This is the guy on social media that argues with everyone and everything at all levels. Philippians 2.3 goes on and mentions another word, along with no room for selfish ambition. He says there's no room for conceit. If the first word speaks of ambition to the ambition or what someone wants to achieve, this word speaks to the attitude behind the ambition. And it comes from individuals who have too high of an opinion of themselves. It means vainglory. It means empty glory. Beloved, it doesn't matter who it is, but when men or women are conceited, when they have too high of an opinion of themselves, and their agenda is the only one who counts, it doesn't matter if it's a pastor or an elder or a person in the pew. As James states, there will be confusion in every evil or vile thing. It's so vital that we hold firmly to and we defend and declare and teach the things in Scripture that are true without dispute, without discussion, without compromise. But on the things where Scripture is not as clear, we can hold to our own convictions, but be very careful about constantly having to be first, always winning the argument and putting other opinions down. When we were in Florida, I was a discussion with this person who attended a church, and we happened to be talking about how to educate children. And she said to me, she says, she says you know it's right. And I said, I, no, no, I, I, don't, I don't know it's right. There's a variety of options that would move a parent to go in a particular direction. And this person and many like them would have no use, no unity, no fellowship with another family that didn't do anything her way. Do you have anything to be conceited about? Isn't that the whole point of the last part of chapter 1 and going into chapter 2? That Christ has done everything? That you were dead before he saved you and everything that you have is from him? So, so what, what, what are you, why are you conceited about anything? Not, not, not just believers, but does anyone on the planet have any reason to be conceited about anything? God gives man his life breath. He can take us out at any moment he wants. In just an instant, he takes Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who goes out and says, look at the kingdom I built. And in an instant, he moves him from the palace to eating grass like an animal. And the lesson that he learned at the end was that the God that gave him his life breath, he didn't glorify. So you thinking more of yourself than you should and wanting your way 
to serve your own purposes will destroy or prevent any unity in the church. That's what prevents unity. Selfish ambition and conceit. But what promotes unity? The rest of verse 3. But in humility, of, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. See, instead of selfish ambition and vainglory and conceit, instead of thinking so highly of your thoughts, your opinions, and your directives, instead of talking about me, 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 and wanting what I want, the command is to count others more significant than yourself. So instead of valuing yourself, you place a high value, an exceptional value on others. You need to consider those around you as valuable. That's the command. The attitude behind the command is the first half of the phrase. You count others more significant than yourself through humility. And some translations call that lowliness of mind. Uh, the Greek word for lowliness of mind is, is the total antithesis of modern man. In fact, not just modern man, but man ever since the garden. Man in general. The word literally means, it means a deep sense of one's moral littleness. A deep sense of one's moral littleness. Having a humble opinion of oneself, which is a far cry from today's idea that you are somebody. Far cry from today's idea of the self-esteem gospel from love yourself and believe in yourself and put yourself first. It's just amazing to have unity in the church. I must have a deep sense, first and foremost, of my own moral littleness and my own nothingness. The philosophy of self that used to be just in secular society has been repackaged and baptized into Christian orthodoxy. So instead of yourself seeing yourself in your own moral littleness, dying to self and living for others, we're being told by some that you, you are somebody, that the most important person on the planet is you. Be good to yourself. You deserve it. That love your neighbor as yourself means you have to love yourself first. And these are all not biblical. So in lowliness of mind, as you understand your own moral littleness, you're to count others as more significant than yourself. Counting others better than yourself means that you deem them superior in rank. It means that you're interacting with them, believing in your heart that they have more value than you do. Which will never happen if you don't see your own moral littleness. Which will never happen if you have too high of an opinion of yourself. Which will never happen if you're full of conceit and selfish ambition. Which is really a great lead into the summary statement in verse 4 because this thought continues. Let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others. You see the reason you're looking for the interests of others is because you do place a high value on them. They're your brothers and your sisters in Christ, your family, you're in the kingdom together, and in, in conversations that will not promote unity, that are not about doctrine or protecting the truth, you won't forcefully press your opinions, and you'll be genuinely interested in what they think. So what this means, as far as maintaining unity goes, is something like this. I, I have a longtime friend. Now, first, let me say this. I'm not the most unified. I'm not going to I'm not trying to communicate that that I do this well. Okay, 
my, most of my opinions is I know I'm right because if I'm wrong, I change my mind. So, so unity is, is not easy for any of us. And I have a longtime friend who we are in complete agreement in regards to the gospel, in regards to theology. We love the truth, and I love fellowship. I've known him for over 40 years. He's a source of counsel. He's a source of encouragement. We talk honestly over the phone and in person when we see each other about anything in life. If I needed him for any reason, he would drop everything, and he'd come to help. And, and I would do the same for him. He has completely different views than I do about the medical community. Um, we, completely different views on some parts of politics. He has different views on how churches handled COVID. He has different views on vaccinations. Uh, he, he has different views on whether or not we should arm ourselves and prepare to defend ourselves if something happens. When we talk, I sometimes get off the phone and I, and I say to myself, what on earth are you talking about? As I say it to myself and to the Lord. My unity with him is in Christ. My love for him is in Christ. My oneness with him is because of Christ. And isn't that exactly the counsel that Paul gave Yodia and Syntyche in chapter 4, verse 2, when she told, he told them to agree in the Lord? He wasn't choosing sides for them. He was saying, you guys need to agree in the Lord. Whatever's going on between them, he's admonishing them to set those things aside and agree in the things they can agree on. Agree in the Lord. Agree in what's true. Agree in the Bible. Agree in orthodoxy. Now, assuming there's no major offenses to work through, this is surely a start, isn't it? With the friend I described, there are far more things that we agree on in the Lord than things we disagree on outside the main and plain things of Scripture. So for unity's sake, we just don't talk about them. But don't miss this. The attitude behind whatever discussion will take place between these ladies, the attitude must be one that lacks selfish ambition and lacks conceit. And it must have a humble mindset and a genuine concern for the other person. To expect these two to listen carefully at what the other person's saying. And if conclusions can't be agreed on, then at least a Christ-like attitude of genuine humility prevails because they're sisters in Christ. So now they can begin working together for the sake of the gospel. And that's really where the rest of the text is going, isn't it? As Paul anchors all that's been said in the humility of the Lord Jesus in verse 5. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." And we'll come back to that in greater detail next week. But the Lord Jesus gives us the most extreme example of humility that has ever been or ever will be ever. The, the, the God of the universe, the God who created everything that we see, everything we don't see, who, who, who's created the, the, the world so it, it, it revolves, uh, so, so it, it, ro it rotates. 
get my science together here. Jessica's in the room. Um, 24 hours a day. In one day, the whole, the whole earth rotates so that we have just enough sun and just enough heat and just enough light. And we're just the right amount of distance away from the sun so we can have life. We have the moon. We have the stars. We have the oceans. We have the waves. The God who created everything and, and everyone empties himself, makes himself of no reputation, and he takes on the form of a servant coming to earth in the likeness of men. J.B. Phillips translates this verse this way. Let Christ himself be your example as to what your attitude should be. For he who had always been God by nature did not cling to his prerogatives as God's equal, but stripped himself of all privilege by consenting to be a slave by nature and being born as a mortal man. And having become man, he humbled himself by living a life of utter obedience, even to the extent of dying. Jesus humbled himself to the point that he, as God, entered into the world that he created. God entered the world through he created through a human birth canal. And if that's not humble enough, he became a slave. And if that's not humble enough, he obeyed even to death. And if that's not humble enough, he, 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 it wasn't the run-of-the-mill death. It was a brutal, disgusting, agonizing, humiliating, humiliating, grotesque death, a death on a cross, an execution that was reserved only for the most evil and the most vile offenders in Roman society. So he, who is everything, became nothing. So why is it? That you and I, who are nothing, think we're everything. Unity starts with humility. Unity starts with you. It starts with understanding your moral littleness. And then valuing your brothers and sisters in Christ. First here at Grace Fellowship and then others. Valuing them and their thoughts and their opinions above your own. Even if they're different for the purpose of preserving and maintaining unity here in the body of Christ. May God grant us unity in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we even think through and contemplate the call to unity in the middle of all the diverse opinions and thoughts that we have about so many things, oh, how I pray that you would help us as a church family uh, to be looking to you for uh, guidance and grace and mercy. Lord, help us be ever so patient with one another. Lord, there are so many things that have gone on here in the last few years here in our country that have affected the church, that has caused the church to be in disunity at times. And I just pray that we would find ourselves, find our own moral littleness and valuing each other ab above ourselves so we could listen carefully. And God, even when we don't agree we can still love one another because of all that you've done for us in Christ. Thank you for the unity that is here among so many. And I pray that that would continue, Father. And I pray that if there's anyone here, even this morning, who has a broken relationship with anyone else in the church, that you'd restore it. Father, I pray so, oh, how I pray, God, that you would unify us, that you would bless us, you would lead us, and you would guide us as we look to our Heavenly Father for peace. In Christ's name.